Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Zoe. And welcome to the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. This is an episode we like to call You Ask Us. Hello, I'm Anoush Shakelian, Britain editor at the New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our policy and politics correspondent, Zoe Grunewald, and our political correspondent, Freddie Haywood. Zoe, which question have you picked for us this week? Okay, so uh, this one is from an anonymous listener. What was behind Suella Braverman's speech on immigration? This is a great question. It's sort of the story of the week. Uh, This was a speech the Home Secretary made in Washington to a right-wing US think tank called the American Enterprise Institute. And she made a number of quite eye-catching statements. So for any of our listeners who haven't been following this, she said that a misguided dogma of multiculturalism has proven toxic for Europe that the pace of migrant arrivals poses an existential threat to the West. And she also called for changes to what defines a refugee under the UN Convention, saying, for example, fear of discrimination for being gay or a woman shouldn't qualify you. Um, Let's talk a little bit about the substance of the speech before we go to our listener's point, which was, you know, why was she making it? Freddie, was this um, a big intervention? I remember David Cameron talking about how the doctrine of multiculturalism had failed in his early speeches back in the 2010s. Yeah, I think this is part of the problem with the narrative around immigration is that the people think that the past two years, or at least since Brexit, has seen a massive rise in rhetoric that you could frame as anti-immigration. But it's not. It's it's very common. Tony Blair, as as you've written on before, Anoush, and as we've discussed, was also quite uh, lent into the anti-asylum seeker narrative and uh, rhetoric. So you see politicians do it all the time. I think the broader question is, has the global consensus or has it reached a point where we do look at these international conventions and recognise that migration is in a different state than what it was perhaps in the 50s, in part because of things like climate change, because of transport, because of war, all of these things have changed and shifted the narrative. And you've also seen this rise of a much more populist, you could argue anti-globalisation narrative on on parts of the right and on the left, but mostly on the right around the West. So, So I think, yeah, there has been, these things have been said in the past, but the momentum and the shift and the emphasis with which these uh, issues are debated has increased. 
Yeah. What did you make of the substance of the speech, Zoe? There were plenty of things about the speech that I think people would find quite problematic. So she spoke about, you know, the misguided dogma of multiculturalism. And I think one of the things that a lot of people found quite difficult or quite um, problematic was when she spoke about people leaning on discrimination in order to claim asylum. So saying now just claiming that you are gay or you fear persecution because you're a woman means you qualify for asylum. And I think that's very much kind of, it's, it's slightly dog whistle, but it also very much is in keeping with cultural narratives that we've we've been hearing more and more across the UK, across the West, which is that increasingly identity politics have become very kind of an adversarial issue. So she's definitely leaning into a lot of those sort of cultural arguments, I think, in her arguments uh, for clamping down on migration. What was in- interesting, because it was missing from the speech, was obviously any reflection on internal issues in the UK that are affecting our migration system. So there was there was barely any reflections on, you know, the the, the system we have here, the home office needing reform, um, the backlogs. It was very much a, this is a global problem. And to some extent, it's to do with the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and that was very much the target of her, of her speech and her anger. And I think what uh, irritated a lot of people was the, the sort of lack of self-reflection, the lack of accountability from the Home Secretary. Um, and for that reason, it seemed quite performative I think to a lot of people because it felt like she was basically placing the the issue at, at you know other people's door and, and not res- accepting any responsibility for her role as Home Secretary in the crisis. Well that's what I think is really interesting about these kind of speeches because they sort of you know they're supposed to be kind of banging the nationalist drum but they are actually very internationalist in flavour. She was in Washington making this speech and she was talking about um, the issues in America that they have with immigration and she was getting, you know, quite good write-ups from sort of the right-wing press there, um, which is, you know, which is quite interesting because, like you say, there are a lot of idiosyncratic problems with the UK's asylum system that she is, you know, supposed to be in charge of and you've seen, you know, failures in the sense of the barge that was supposed to house some of these people over the summer um, and the backlog just keeps on rising. So why was she making it then? Because, you know, we often talk about why draw attention to an issue that you're sort of manifestly failing on? Why was she making this speech? Really? Um, well, what's really interesting, I think, is that she's been able to separate, as Zoe alluded to, separate responsibility for the issue with criticising the issue. Mm. Um, she's able to say that we need to solve this problem without uh, looking at Conservative Party policy since 2010 or her own tenure as Home Secretary. Uh, I mean, David Cameron came in in 2010 and said we need to get migration below 100,000. That was about legal migration. And then the, the debates broadly shifted onto boats crossing the channel. Um, so I I think she's done it done a remarkably good job, actually, of not taking responsibility. And that's uh, quite a powerful thing to do because she can hold this position of power within the party, but also be the figurehead for those who are very critical of Rishi Sunak. And I think one of the reasons she's been able to do that is because Rishi Sunak is so involved in uh, migration policy and stopping the boats. He's, he's identified it as one of the key priorities for voters. Yeah, reportedly, he's, that's all he brings up when he meets uh, European leaders and they get annoyed about that, all that he wants to talk about. <laughs> uh, but that just means also that he's become conflated with the issue as well in the minds of the public. Yeah. And this is a broader problem for the Conservative Party in general. They raise the salience of immigration. Uh, the right says, well, you're not tackling it. Numbers are through the roof. Uh, Boats are still coming across the channel. The left says you're not treating migrants with compassion. So on both sides, there are uh, reasonable criticisms, but they still keep talking about it. It is remarkable. You can't just identify that the public care about something 
uh, if you're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, and that's why I thought what was really interesting about the tone of this speech was it was almost like someone in opposition giving it, wasn't it? Because she, first of all, like you say, Zoe, she wasn't referencing you know where the Conservative Party is on its policies and on its challenges on this, but she also was you know suggesting that this is decades of failure. This was a sort of doctrine that had failed that everyone had bought into, and that directly contradicts government the government line on this. I went back to look at the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities that came out in 2021, which we spoke about on this podcast. And that celebrates the story of our country's progress to a successful multicultural community, a beacon to the rest of Europe and the world. So, you know, I remember that paper was quite controversial at the time for sort of glossing over perhaps some of the systemic racism um, that campaigners were saying were, were an issue in the country and the Conservative government were trying to paint a different narrative about multiculturalism in this country that was more positive. Um, and she's actually going directly against that. But she's not in opposition. She's in one of the great offices of state, which made me think, and of course, this is borrowed from Rachel Cunliffe's very good piece about how this was a potential pitch for mm. uh, the next Tory leadership race, um, that, yeah, she's going up against her opponents within the Conservative Party. Yeah, I, I'd absolutely agree. And I think um, we've seen this from from Suella. She always seems to, Suella Bravman, she always seems to go just that little bit further than the government line on things. Mm. And it's interesting, Freddie, obviously you were saying that that Sunak has become sort of, you know, widely associated with his immigration policy. You know, plenty of other uh, secretaries tend to take responsibility for their policy area and, and Braverman has as well. But I think what's really interesting about this, because Braverman keeps hinting that she would go that little bit further than the government, the failure there does seem to lie at Sunak's door for a lot of people because I think they think, uh, those on the right of the party think, if Braverman was in charge, perhaps she would go further, perhaps she would do those things that w they think are necessary to actually... And it's like Sunak and the others holding her back. Exactly. Mm. And I think she's managed to position herself in this way. And it's interesting, there was a little bit of back and forth about whether the Prime Minister signed off on her speech, whether he'd seen it, and it transpired that he had signed off on it. But even that discussion being quite so public really tells you quite a lot about the power dynamics between Braverman and Sunak. You know, the idea that could she possibly have delivered this speech without Sunak's knowing? Is that something that's believable? Tells you a lot about where Sunak stands and how powerful Braverman is in the party. And we know she is. She's really the figurehead for the right. And she's holding Sunak's feet to the fire over immigration while simultaneously staying in the tent. Mm. Why, why does he give her such free reign, Freddie? I think it's because he doesn't think he can necessarily stop her doing so, as Zoe says. I mean, we've got to look back at the leadership election, the second one, uh, when he effectively had to promise to give Suella Braverman the Home Secretary role because she was not going to hit the threshold of 100 MPs, but she had a lot of support that he wanted to to bring in. And it's always been a reflection of the fact that he tried to unite the party when he came in. He saw Liz Truss had quite a stripped down uh, approach to bringing in loyalists. And he initially wanted to to widen that appeal and stop uh, stop the division that had uh, brought down Liz Truss. And then going back to Suella Braverman and her standing within the party, yes, she is, I think, the leading figurehead on the right. There are still lots of MPs uh, on the right of the party who find her the most appealing. It's also worth noting that, as you saw with Liz Truss, there are many who are absolutely repulsed by her and will do a lot uh, or as much as they can to stop her becoming a leader. Remember, even from the early days of Liz Truss's leadership campaign, there was a strong contingent within the parliamentary party who were saying, no, she is crazy, yeah. we don't want her. So I think you're going to see the same 
Uh, I mean, if she does run, if we uh, we do see that contest, you're going to see the same dynamic play out. Secondly, I would say that conference will be really interesting to see yeah, I was how ask much about that. Um, support she has. It won't be as chaotic as last year's <laughs> conference when Michael Gove was basically uh, destroying Liz Truss's premiership, uh, fringe event after fringe event after fringe <laughs> event, uh, and you just saw everything break down. It's not going to be like that, but you are going to see cabinet ministers trying to increase their support with the party membership, trying to get those headlines, and I, I and it's this weekend, we should say, so all, all, you know, I'll be heading up there. I think, Zoe, you're going as well. So it'll be really interesting to see um, how different cabinet ministers speak to the membership and also what number 10 does in response. Yeah, it's, well, it's interesting that she made this speech just before Tory conference. And I know you say that this one will be quite different from last year, but she was the trouble, troublemaker there as well, yeah. among many. Among many, um, yes. But, you know, she was yeah. talking about benefit street culture, talking about how it was her dream to see a flight uh, to Rwanda take <laughs> off on the front page of the Telegraph, mm-hmm. which, you know, back then seemed controversial, but now doesn't seem controversial. It's one of the more Weird. sort of calm yeah. things she said. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it was absolute mayhem. And she is probably one of those those ministers that the Tory membership will queue around the conference hall to go and watch at any fringe events where she might say these outspoken things. So, uh, you know, I'm trusting on you two to go and watch her and and pick up on anything. (laughs) After the break, Zoe and I are going to do a You Ask Freddie about what happened at the Lib Dem conference, which he was at earlier this week. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. So, Freddie, you've been down in Bournemouth the past few days at the Lib Dem conference, so we just wanted to chuck questions at you about what it was like. So... Tell us a bit about the atmosphere there. Yeah, so this was the first uh, conference since 2019. They were supposed to have one last year after COVID, but the Queen died and then they cancelled it. So you still had the Tory and Labour conference, but not the Lib Dem one. So this is the first time they've met since 2019. And remember back then, Jo Swinson was the leader. She'd just come in um, and she was proclaiming that she had a good chance of becoming Prime Minister. This was when the two parties were really struggling. Remember those European elections yeah. um, when the Tories came fifth? Um so they were talking about 200 seats back then. Uh, that was sort of the ballpark. And I think there was a, a an overconfidence that many people this year were wary about avoiding. So it was much calmer, more composed. It was still quite confident, though, I think. I think they've obviously had a very good year. Some huge by-election victories, uh, which has given them a momentum. And, and, and speaking to some of the strategists there, they're going to be using the by-elections as a model for the general election. Of course, the Lib Dems and lots of the smaller parties struggle um, when you approach a general election as compared to the the by-elections. But no, the atmosphere was, it was very jolly, it was very friendly. I think, you know, without that sort of dangle of power in front of them, it's it's not as uh, combative or belligerent as you sometimes find at Labour and uh, Tory conferences. So, so very positive, very positive few days. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of the coalition years, you know, when they were... 
well, obviously they're in power then, but now they're sort of on the brink of deciding who's going to be in power, although they, they have ruled out any 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 prospect of propping up the Conservatives. Yeah, wisely so. I mean, yeah. Ed Davies' team, I don't think, want to focus the next year and a half or year or however long it is on the question of whether they're going to go into coalition with Labour. It just distracts from what they're talking about. It doesn't necessarily help them in Tory seats. So they're just going to shut it down. Yeah, and, and the main headlines, I don't know about you, Zoe, but the main things that I saw coming out of Lib Dem conference, I wasn't actually there um, to report on it, was that, you know, the whole strategy is targeting the blue wall and then quite a lot on the state of the NHS. Can you yeah. explain a bit about those two focuses? Yeah, so we've discussed the blue wall and their focus on it in the past, but effectively they see that they came uh, second in about 80 seats uh, last year, in Tory seats, sorry. So that's their main focus. And also most of these are in the south. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some seats in the north, so places like Hazel Grove, Cheadle, you know, those sort of wealthier parts of South Manchester. Uh, there'll also be a few seats in Scotland. The southwest is obviously a traditional stronghold for the Lib Dems. But yeah, the key focus is blue wall Tory seats. That links to their focus on the NHS. This was the key uh, part, key focus of Ed Davies' speech. He brought in his uh, personal story about um, his how he cared for his mother. And he also said that they want to uh, talk about uh, redressing cancer care, introducing new targets, etc. But the broader strategy is recognising that some of these voters in Tory health seats are wealthy enough that the cost of living doesn't necessarily affect them that much, mm. but the NHS does. Mm-hmm. They're not wealthy enough to get uh, private health care, but they're not poor enough to be completely obsessed of prioritising the cost of living crisis. So they think the NHS is the key issue that can really bring some of these voters on board. Mm, I've noticed that in some of their um, by-election campaigns, especially in the yeah. southwest, where they will be the ones um, to do FOIs on ambulance waiting mm. times in the local area, for example. So they really have been plugging that. I think it's quite a successful strategy so far. It's sort of a, a good idea. It's kind of linked to the blue wall strategy, I suppose, although Ben Walker would tell us off for our <laughs> definition of the red wall. Um, Freddie, one of the things that um, the Westminster media bubble always like at conferences where the sort of dividing lines are emerging yeah. and where mm. the conflicts are. And I think one of the things that came out that I'd seen from uh, Lib Dem conference was this kind of divide between the sort of younger uh, cohort in the Liberal Democrats and the the wealthy countryside over housing targets and what they were going to yeah. do. And obviously there was um, discussion that they might try and sort of undercut the Tories in certain areas by scrapping housing targets to kind of pick up that that um, that vote. cohort, that NIMBY <laughs> vote. Yeah. yeah, so to talk to us a little bit about how that played out. Yeah, so uh, Lib Dem policy at the moment and before conference was that they would keep a national housing target. This is something that the government has had for a very long time, something New Labour had. The thinking that they said they had on it was that we've never hit them before. Uh, it's only good for uh, housing developers. But... You know, as you alluded to there, Zoe, I think there are more political reasons for doing so. So the leadership came to conference and tried to change the policy. The reason that matters is that Lib Dem conference um, actually has some democracy in it, unlike the Tory conference where it doesn't really matter. It's basically a stage for people to get together and for cabinet ministers and leaders to speak to the membership. Labour conference is a bit in the middle. You know, they do have some influence, some of the votes do mean anything, but ultimately it's, it's, command uh, and it's control. up to the, um, the leadership. It is, it's command and control through many different uh, uh, ways. But Lib Dem conference, if they when they vote on a policy as a conference, that is uh, what's going to happen. So you had on the Monday afternoon, it, it all came to a head. In the conference hall, we had a, a series of, uh, I thought were quite... Um, quite well put together speeches um, and then everyone voted and you you had this very well organised campaign from the young Liberals 
um, and they were trying to keep the housing target policy in, and and they were successful. The leadership lost. Yeah, Ed Davey was sat at the front with his voting card like any other member. So there's, you had this proper party democracy in front of you uh, and they all... Um, hugged and it was it was fine there's none of that sort of um there was none of that sort of personal belligerence that you sort of see at other conferences it's like okay well that's what's happened so i think it's a testament to their uh, unity within the party that they can actually uh, decide these policies out in the open and not fall out about yeah. it but yeah it's really interesting i think you're, you're right so it gets to the core of what is the liberal what is the liberal democratic party is it about the young metropolitan uh, liberals who are maybe really interested in PR and they think that we should promote civil liberties and they're very socially progressive? Or is it a response to the move to the right from the Conservative Party? Mm-hmm. Is it them going back to the sort of Cameroon uh, liberal um, countryside vote who are quite uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric coming out of the Tory party, uh, but find the Labour Party too too left-wing for them. It really got to the core of it. I don't think that's been resolved. I think this is, and also my sympathies are to say that it was, they're probably going towards the Cameroon um, mm-hmm. side of things, but this was a sort of a reason to think not. Yeah, I suppose they'll have to go back to what they usually do, which is opposing certain developments in certain key yeah. areas. I mean, um, this is the other thing, right? All Lib Dem uh, strategy is completely focused on individual seats. They yes, won't really yeah. have a national campaign. So it, if you go from one seat to another, it'll be completely different what they say. Well, thanks so much to everyone who submitted questions and for indulging us as we did a You Ask Freddy session. Um, We do read all of your questions, so please keep them coming in. And if you'd like to send us one, just go to newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. And if you're listening on Spotify, you can scroll down on the episode page and leave a reply. And YouTube viewers can just drop a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Zoe Grunewald and Freddie Hayward. We'll be back next week reporting from the Conservative Party conference in Manchester. This episode was produced by Catherine Hughes.